We are going to be in Mark 15. If you would like to turn there. saying people use from time to time uh, to convey a sense of how long it might be before something happens. Uh, the connotation can mean that it's going to take forever, uh, or it can mean a destination, and maybe just one we don't want to reach just yet. And the phrase is kingdom come. And it gets used in various ways. For example, you may think you will be standing in line at the DMV till kingdom come. Or it could be that if you're working with dynamite and you don't handle it with care, you will blow yourself to kingdom come. Uh, in both of these instances, kingdom come is not a good thing. It's either too far away and will take too long to get there, or it's a place we aren't ready to go to just yet. Which is a bit odd how it can have almost opposite meanings depending on how it's used. But what gets lost in all of this is the fact that God's kingdom has come. It has already begun. It's not some far off thing and it's not a place you can go to if you blow up. That's not how that works. Uh, both today and next week, we're going to take a look at how that came to be a reality as we dig into Mark's story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Mark has been telling the story of Jesus and his kingdom from the very first word, and his story has focused on what that kingdom looks like in action. With all of Jesus' teachings, the way he cast out demons and healed people who were sick or had other medical issues, and also how Jesus offered forgiveness to the people that seemed maybe least likely to deserve it. In these and other ways, Mark painted a vivid picture of who Jesus was and why he came, which all revolved around this idea of the kingdom of God, which is the core of everything Jesus said and did. And the events from Thursday evening to Sunday morning in this story form a tightly knit narrative arc of exactly how this kingdom was then inaugurated, of its very foundation, how it came into being fully. Not, not quite fully, but fully enough to begin. And there are lots of details packed into a small space in just this little bit of text. And so we're going to ask a set of guiding questions and then dive right in. Now first, based on what we see in the story that Mark told, how did the kingdom come? What specific details does he include that show us how the kingdom came to be inaugurated or launched? Uh, how did Jesus establish his kingdom, in other words? What kind of actions did he take to set it up? Uh, other than teaching and performing miracles and forgiving people, how did he sort of seal the deal here? And so with all that in mind, we're going to read beginning in Mark 15, verse 21. If you would like to follow along with me there. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. 
And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide which each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. And there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph, and of Salome. When he was in Galilee... When he is in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. When he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Now right away, we see that Jesus was not able to carry the cross. And it wasn't the, the whole cross like in all those old paintings. It wasn't like that. The Romans were efficient. They'd already uh, had the main beams dug in and firmly planted into the ground on the edges uh, and outside of the gates of town, which meant that Jesus was really only carrying the cross beam, this part. And uh, after being beaten and whipped with the cat of nine tails and, and all that he had been through, he could barely even stand up. So the Romans drafted a bystander into their service, which they were typical of doing, and made him carry the beam. So going back to our question, then, how did the kingdom come? The first answer on the list seems to be weakness. 
not power, not swords and armor, not military might, not rebellious insurrection, but weakness. And not just weakness, but weakness in the very face of power. So what does that look like for us? Well, it might look like acknowledging that we can't do this following Jesus thing on our own, that we aren't anywhere near strong enough to handle the journey we are on and the things that we might face, that like Jesus in that moment of weakness, we need someone to lift our burden for us, someone who can carry it for us because we are not able. But isn't that basically what we have all been told at some point or another concerning what salvation is? Isn't this what Jesus said in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, saying, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In a sense, isn't this a picture of Jesus stepping in to carry our cross beam so that we can get up and walk behind him. Following him all the way, wherever he leads us, even to our own death. When we recognize that and surrender to it, isn't that how the kingdom begins to take root in us? To reach deep down into our desperate weakness and bring life and growth. So the first part is weakness. What's the next thing we see in the story? Well, the Romans marched him up to their place of execution, and while they readied the cross, they offered him a mixture of uh, myrrh and wine. The song said gall and wine. Uh, based on tradition, women would offer the condemned a sort of narcotic mixture to decrease their sensitivity to the pain and, and make things just slightly less grueling for them. And this is the first drink that Jesus was offered, but he refused, choosing instead to endure the full conscious extent of his suffering. And that's the second way that the kingdom comes, through suffering by leaning into our pain. See, we live in a culture where pain avoidance is the main priority. We want to always be happy and healthy and never have anything ever go wrong or, or feel bad or, or hurt. But that just isn't the way things work because we live in a broken world. And when Jesus suffered the effects of living in this broken world, when he was beaten and whipped and mocked and taunted and crucified. He didn't strike back. He didn't fight for his rights. He leaned into the pain. In a way, he embraced it. So what does that look like for us? Something that has bothered me for a long while is the fact that when we come together for Bible study or worship, there's little to no room for the pain that we are going through in any given moment. And there's almost no place for lamentation. But all through scripture, we see people leaning into their pain and calling out to God, sometimes angry, sometimes sad, 
sometimes desperate for an answer. Anything, simple acknowledgement. And what we find here is that Jesus can identify with us because he suffered and endured some of the worst pain imaginable. Yet we hardly have the patience or willingness to sit quietly in our own pain or with someone who has been going through something terrible. We feel awkward about sharing the various pain and suffering we experience and maybe the physical we're willing to ask for prayer requests, but not the mental or emotional so much. We don't invest in each other enough to sit down and mourn together or grieve together. We seem to always feel like we have to have an answer, like we have to fix everything immediately, as if that's what it means to be a Christian. Instead of leaning into our own pain in order to fully understand and identify with the pain of others. We don't like pain, and I get it. Pain's not a good thing. But it is a reality right now in the world and in our lives and in the lives of those around us. So acting like everything's fine when it clearly isn't is not the way God's kingdom comes. As with weakness, God's kingdom comes when we accept our pain and lean into it. Because life is painful. The world beats us up. And I'm not saying we should always go around being sour-faced and upset about everything. I'm saying we should have space in our lives for pain and grief and the willingness to share it with each other. Which leads to the third part of this. After nailing Jesus to the crossbeam and hoisting it up into place, the soldiers gambled for his clothing, which tells us they had a pretty casual approach to this whole thing. But it also shows us another reality about the crucifixion and one that we probably don't like to think about. That Jesus was naked. The Romans were gambling for his clothing because they crucified the condemned people naked to add humiliation to their pain and suffering. Which means humiliation is another aspect of how God's kingdom comes. God's willingness to step away from the throne and become one of us, to inhabit his creation not as a powerful king ready to snuff out any opposition, but a humble king, ready to level the playing field and experience life as we do, even to the point of death at our own hands. This becomes real for us when we are willing to become vulnerable and step away from the throne of our own lives. All the ways this world acquires and wields power in order then for us to humbly sacrifice ourselves to the needs of others. So far we have seen that the kingdom comes through weakness, suffering, and humiliation. Which is so vastly different than the way we would have imagined if we were planning it all the way we typically employ, because when it's up to us, we take control. We start directing things and trying to make things happen. But that's not what we see in Jesus at all, even though he had every right to do exactly that. Instead, he endured this gruesome experience to show us the way of his kingdom is unlike the way of the world. It's completely opposite which means we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are following Jesus 
when we do as he did, when we abandon the desire for power altogether, deciding instead to live our lives by being sacrificial servants to whatever end. Now at this point, Mark pointed out that Jesus was crucified between two violent men. And this harkens back to when James and John, the sons of thunder, asked if they could be at his right and his left when he came into his kingdom. But here we are at the moment of truth, and not only is Jesus surrounded by violent men, James and John are nowhere to be found in this scene. As Mark 14:50 reveals, all the disciples had left him and fled. So even though some folks think John was there, we've heard that before, but none of the Gospels actually record that. In the Gospel of John, the only place where we hear anything about a male being present, a man known only as the disciple Jesus loved is said to have been there standing with the women. And many assume this was John's way of referring to himself. We don't know that for sure. In fact, it could have been Lazarus. In John 11:4, we read that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Lazarus was not one of the 12 and would not have been among those who left Jesus and fled in the garden when Judas showed up. But he could easily have been standing at a distance with the women, even though Mark never mentioned him. It's all speculation. We don't know for sure. But all that's to say that it wasn't James and John at Jesus' side in that moment as he began to inaugurate his kingdom by dying for it. They weren't dying beside him for the kingdom. They weren't a part of it. It was just him and two violent strangers. Now we're going to skip over the mocking religious leaders for just a moment. We'll come back to them, circle back in a minute. But right now we come to one of the most heart-wrenching moments, I think, in the entire story. Mark sort of gives a timeline recording that from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness over the whole land, and that would roughly be from noon to 3 p.m. as we understand it. And it's at this point that Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken implications of this are immense. Jesus, the Son of the Father and the second person of the Trinity, felt abandoned by God. There's a lot we can talk about here. The vast theological implications and how this affects our doctrine of the Trinity, the fact that Jesus was fulfilling prophecy in this moment, the fact that he was basically quoting the first line of Psalm 22, a psalm David wrote as his life hung in the balance. And a psalm about crying out for rescue and feeling abandoned, but holding on to hope anyway. But if we set all that aside for just a moment, what we see is someone feeling alienated, an outcast, and abandoned. Which is a feeling we have probably all had at some point or another. Jesus knows what that feels like because he's been there. He felt it. Even now as he sits at the right hand of the Father, he identifies with us when we feel like that. He's able to bring that feeling to bear when interceding with the Father on our behalf. And even though we believe Jesus was without sin throughout his life, 
and perfect in every way. This experience changed him because it showed the creator of the universe what being a part of the creation is like. What it sometimes feels like when we pray to a sky with no answers. When we earnestly search for God's will and don't get any clear direction. When the Father is silent in the midst of our weakness and suffering and humiliation, just like he was with Jesus during this whole experience. In a strange way, I actually find a bit of hope in this because I trust that having felt this way, Jesus not only knows what it's like, but is consistently bringing it up to the Father. We may call it intercession as a fancy sort of religious word, but I often think of it as Jesus imploring the Father on our behalf, as if he's up there saying things like, Father, <coughs> Kent's going through some awful stuff right now, and he needs to know your presence. Move in his life through the Spirit. Remind him of your presence and love, and make him aware of just how much you care. This all ties us directly back to what Jesus endured. And it's directly connected to how his kingdom came to be. His experience of these things allowed him to know in a different way than he had known before because it became part of his experience of life, which is huge. But it also paves the way for what happened next. Because when Jesus experienced on the cross, Jesus stated, uh, I'm sorry, Mark stated that the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, theologically, we are taught that this means we now have access to the Father because of what Jesus did, and that's true. The Holy of Holies is now open for each and every one of us to approach the Lord. Anyone can approach now and speak to the Father without any sort of mediator. But consider just how closely these two things are related. Jesus felt abandoned and forsaken by the Father at the same time the Father was ripping the veil in half and opening the door for everyone. God's compassion for his creation finally removed what separated us from him. The way was open. Open to the heavenly temple, open to the throne, open to the very heart of the Father, The religious leaders would no longer have control over who had access to God because now everyone had access. So speaking of the religious leaders, let's circle back to them and their mockery. We see all through the story, Jesus had, uh, Mark has been telling uh, that they couldn't stand Jesus. They, he felt, they felt threatened by him, and so they wanted him destroyed. They wanted him removed and out of the way. And they finally formed a plan and made it happen. They made a mockery of his arrest and his trial. They mocked him and spit on him and punched him. And even now, as he hung on the cross, they stood below him, mocking and taunting him. They even said at one point that if he saved himself and came down, they would believe. Which is rich with irony, because... If for whatever reason he had come down, it wouldn't have done them any good. So they stood around reveling in their victory over him. 
But whereas Mark had previously showed just how similar they were to the Romans and how both groups treated Jesus horribly all through this process, here we see a change of sorts. And it's not from the religious folks. In verse 39, we see a Roman centurion who was there, maybe even one of the ones who hammered in the nails and gabbled for Jesus' clothing. <clears throat> this soldier was paying close attention when Jesus cried out and died. And it moved him. To the point where he said, truly this man was the Son of God. So while the religious leaders, Jesus' own people, were still mocking him and taking great pleasure in his agonizing death, this Roman soldier paused to recognize the weight of what was happening, of who Jesus was. And that brings up the question, what about us? Who do we more closely resemble in this? The religious folks who rejected Jesus and didn't want to listen and wanted things to stay how they were because it benefited them? Or the Roman soldier who stopped, paid attention to who Jesus was and what was happening? Are we willing to pause at the cross? These days, there seems to be two extremes far as the cross goes. The cross is either a, a decoration or, or it's pretty much dismissed. I've walked into a church, Melissa can tell you all about this too, where the entire front entrance of the lobby was just covered in crosses. There must have been like a hundred of them. All different sizes and types and styles and all that stuff. I've also known churches where they are rarely if ever even mentioned the cross. The cross never comes up. Where the cross has become maybe, maybe a thing of embarrassment, something they don't want to acknowledge openly like it's some sort of awkward family secret. But if we are willing to stop this week, to come to the foot of the cross and stand alongside this Roman soldier, acknowledging that Jesus was in fact the Son of God, all that it means for him to be dying on the cross, if we will pause, it will change us. We will recognize our own weakness, our own suffering, and our own humiliation in him. We will see that he has become like us so that we can become like him. That the creator of the universe took on weakness, suffering, and humiliation so that we might take on strength and joy and dignity in him. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we might go on to become like Jesus if we will only stop at the cross and acknowledge who he is and what he has done. If we can bring ourselves to admit that Jesus is Lord and that we are not, we will be changed. At this point, Mark included the fact that there were women looking on from a distance, and he listed Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph. Some passages might say Joseph, but in the Greek, it's Joseph it means the same thing. Uh, and then a lady named Salome. Matthew clarifies that Salome was the mother 
of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the, also known as the sons of Thunder. So their mom is there. Both Gospels list these three women and mention that there were other women present who had followed Jesus as well, which is an odd detail if you think about it. Because in the day, that day and time, women were not considered reliable sources of testimony for truth. They could not testify to the truth or falsehood, for that matter, of anything in court or before the religious council. Which means that if only women were present as Mark claimed, and he was relying on them for the details of the crucifixion, then he was willing to risk people not believing the story in order to tell the truth about what happened. Now we'll return to this next Sunday when we look at the resurrection because these women were involved as first-hand witnesses of that as well. So we'll come back around to that. But what all this reveals to us is that God was not following the traditions of men and doing the things we might do things. God didn't care about the way that we might do things. The truth of the story wasn't going to rely on the disciples because they all ran away. Instead, it was going to rest on those who stayed. The ones who came to the cross, even if they were women. God was willing to let the story of Jesus' death and resurrection, some of the most important moments in the whole story of Jesus and his kingdom, rest in the hands of these women disciples who followed Jesus all the way to the cross and then beyond to the empty tomb. And that's no small thing. So we'll come back to that next week. We'll have more to say about that next week. But this brings us to Jesus' burial. And it may seem like a minor detail stuck in between the death and resurrection, but Jesus' burial is significant. In verses 42 through 47, Mark wrote that a respected member of the Jewish religious council by the name of Joseph of Arimathea received his body from Pilate. And we are given a lot of information about who he is outside of the fact that he was then also looking for the kingdom of God which is simply Mark's way of saying that even though he was officially a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling religious body and council, he had not been involved with the arrest, the trial, and the execution of Jesus. Matthew claimed that he was a disciple of Jesus. So it seems maybe the council as a whole wasn't even fully involved or on board or present when all of that other stuff was taking place. It was just one group within the group. But why is this guy important? Well, here we see a wealthy man of power who was willing to set all that aside to follow Jesus. And when Jesus died, he went to Pilate and asked for his body so that he could give him a proper burial, lest his body be thrown into Gehenna. Because as we remember from a few weeks back, that was the dump outside of town where they disposed of unclaimed criminals. Which means Joseph was doing the right thing. Even though with Jesus dead, it seems as if maybe that no longer mattered. In other words, Joseph did the right thing when nobody was looking. When his faith must have been thrown into disarray because of Jesus' death. And all the doubts and fears crept up. 
when everything he may have believed about Jesus being the Messiah had been crucified there right alongside him. Now, none of this is written in the text. I'm guessing based on what it says. But based on what we do see in the text, it makes sense. All that to say, Joseph took Jesus and buried him in his own tomb, cut from solid rock in the side of a hill, with the women who had been mentioned looking on. They were there to know where he was. And then Joseph rolled a stone in front of the opening and sealed the tomb as the women went to prepare spices for embalming, clearly planning on returning after the Sabbath to embalm his body with them, a plan that would bring them back early Sunday morning. Because even though we all need to stop at the cross, we absolutely cannot stay there. We have to go on to the empty tomb as well. Because that's where the launch of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven was secured. Will you pray with me?